Another super long second reading today. I know you're disappointed. What? I wanted at least 25 verses. You don't feel like you've really gotten in there until you get the whole laundry list of all the complaints of Isaiah. Woo! No, we're not going to wish that on us today. Okay, so today we actually have kind of a fun starting place. We're going to talk about a wedding. The wedding of Canaan. I'm going to just walk us through the story like I did last week and just kind of explore the story itself. On the third day, the Bible says, and this is from the Gospel of John, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. So the Gospel of John is not the same as the other Gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There are overlaps between Matthew, Mark, and Luke and, and in John. But for John, the happenings are different. Some of the stories are different. The context from which John arises are different, and we see those differences. So for John, the beginning of the book isn't a Christmas story, but we are introduced to Jesus as the Word of God and the assertion that Jesus was with God from the beginning. We go from that introduction to a story about John the Baptist. John the Baptist, remember, is a holy man and a prophet at the same time as Jesus, and he also had disciples. John is talking to his own disciples about Jesus, and Jesus, after he is baptized, begins to draw disciples of his own. So by the time of the story of the miracle of water into wine, Jesus has four disciples at his side, Andrew, Simon Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel, and maybe more. Jesus' mother was there at the celebration, and the disciples were invited, and Jesus... So this tells us that there's close family ties or close friendships here. So Jesus' um, family would have been part of the wedding party in some ways, and we learn that by the way his mother responds to the lack of wine. So geez, the story continues. When the wine ran out, <clears throat> Jesus' mother said to Jesus, they don't have any wine. And Jesus replied, woman, what does that have to do with me? My time hasn't come yet. And his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. So we can guess with Jesus' mother being so uh, in the know about the wine situation that she was close, she had close kin there, and she was helping, and she alerts Jesus to the lack of wine. So now many of us probably don't need convincing, <clears throat> I don't have to unpack to, for you, why being out of wine might be considered an emergency, right? In fact, there's a word that's coined on the internet, novenophobia, the fear of running out of wine, right? I definitely have some friends for whom, like, what? There's nothing left in the wine bottle. So apparently, wine lovers uh, definitely know this fear. And it just a short trip through Amazon tells me that you can buy a pillow with the, uh, with the sentiment on it or maybe a baseball T-shirt. Now, I'm not sure the wisdom of wearing a baseball T-shirt, you know, playing baseball and drinking wine at the same time. I might not recommend that, but there it is. So... So here's why running out of wine mattered in Jesus' day. The feast of the wedding is really the important part. We, we love the big ceremony and everything, and that's kind of... But, but in Jesus' day, the fact that these two families were going to come together, and they were going to enter into a sort of 
life-sustaining relationship where being in connection with this other family meant that you were going to be able to rely on them in times of scarcity, in times of plenty, helping with uh, the farm uh, uh, chores, or if there was somebody who was ill, or in birthing of the babies. These families share a meal, and the... generosity and plenty, the banquet of it, as a way of sort of stating this deep connection that my life is now bound up with your life. And it's not just bride and groom, but the families extended are drawn into that. So breaking bread together mattered. Um, It's a relationship of mutual honor. So it becomes this family that you're now bringing in. So if you're the groom and you're bringing the bride's family in, Honor now ripples through everybody. So if I do something dishonorable, it's going to dishonor the in-law family too. And so there's a lot of attention paid to behaving well and caring for each other so that we don't dishonor each other. Um, And uh, the wedding invitations would have gone out, and some important gifts would have flowed back in, and one of those gifts would have been wine. So to run out of wine at the wedding kind of implies they didn't really have enough friends to supply you with the wine, that your friends didn't have enough resources to supply you with enough wine, or maybe they just didn't care about you enough to give you the wine that would be honoring of your union together. So it casts shame to run out of wine. It casts shame. And here, Jesus is acting a little bit like the groom's family's wingman. (laughs) I got this. So Jesus' mother, she sees this. She knows what's at stake. Remember, in this culture at this time, even today in the Middle East, women are wise. They're thought of as wise. Women notice where, oops, we're going to shore this up because otherwise there's going to be a loss of honor here. And they instruct the men and the boys into how to behave honorably in different situations. And they're known to be wise in this way. So Jesus' mother does exactly the right thing. She knows who can help. And she goes to him. So Mary goes to Jesus and gives him a heads up that it's a hot day and Uncle Bill is really thirsty and there's not much wine left. So this story is traditionally known as Jesus' first miracle. And in this story, he is sort of stepping into open ministry. So remember, he has just experienced a very public baptism where the power came down on him, and he is already drawing disciples. So this might be, you know, Jesus has a mom like everybody else. This might be Jesus' mom's way of giving him a little nudge. Like, okay, you know, there's an opportunity to do this. And it's a wedding party, right? It's a small thing, even a silly thing. Certainly, it's an easy thing. And Mary shows no doubts about it. And Jesus steps up. So here's the next part of the story. Nearby were six stone water jars used for the Jewish cleansing ritual, each able to hold about 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they are filled to the brim. Two things. First, yay, Jesus is doing something. Second, major bummer. The water needs to go in these huge jars made of stone. And to have six in this little uh, country wedding would have meant that the neighbors had lent theirs, right? So they're borrowed. Um, And the servants who had already lugged all the water that was needed for all the cleaning rituals ahead of time up 
into the house and had already performed all their work of washing and honoring the guests are told, let's do it again. <laughs> Go get more water. Can you imagine lugging one of these things? Can you imagine it? Right? Um, so props to the servants, right? They did it. They went and they came back with the water. And then Jesus says, Jesus told them, now draw some from the stone uh, jugs and take, them to the, take it to the head waiter. And they did. The head waiter tasted the water that had become wine. They didn't know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. So Jesus' first miracle, a small hometown miracle at the request of his mother for the blessing of a wedding and the preservation of family honor all round. So though this is small, it resonates in a really big way. For Jesus' first proof of who and what he is and what he is capable of, he doesn't rupture the heavens or boil the seas. He, he doesn't have to help with the wine. He could have waited until later and kicking back with, you know, Andrew and being all like, hey, hey, Simon Peter, bring me that little water jug over there and a goblet. I'm kind of thirsty, right? That's not what he did. He seeks out the goodness and well-being at the center of village life. It demonstrates how Jesus believed God's power would and should be used. This miracle benefited regular people in a down-home context. It even benefited the servants who had to lug the stone jars because they were in the know while others were not. They had a front row seat to the honor that flowed from that. They were part of the first recorded miracle of Jesus. So the story in the gospel goes on. The head waiter called the groom and said, everyone serves the good wine first. They bring out the second rate wine only when the guests are drinking freely. You have kept the good wine until now. So a further bump of honor here. This was the first miraculous sign that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. He, was revealed, he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So the head waiter remarks on how good the wine is. And then I get a little bit of a giggle in the last verse of this story. Um, so we are told Jesus reveals his glory. So the word glory, we're used to hearing it again in English. It means radiance, light. Uh, he he re reveals a splendor and brightness, this glory. Jesus re reveals himself. It's like, wow, can you imagine like seeing actually the glory of Jesus? Can you, can you imagine that? Like it's... Right? Anyway, so then Jesus does this and reveals his excellence, and we are told that the disciples believed in him. So, not to pick on the disciples or anything, but the word here for believed, when John tells us they believed him, is a very normal, boring tense in Greek. It's the aorist. They're pretty much just letting us know here. Yeah, and they believed in him. <laughs> So the glory of God has been made manifest, the brilliant, radiant excellence. You would think that would have earned a little bit of a deeper reaction from the disciples. Jesus is a man of transformation, and they saw it, and they believed in everything, but you know, they didn't believe perfectly or completely. The perfect tense is not used here. It is clear that our disciples were off to a good, solid start. Their belief is active, but they have a bit of a way to go. So, 
I'm not the first preacher to complain about the disciples being a little slow on the uptake. Um, and I think that it's a blessing that they are to us and that that's recorded um, because um, the uh, reality is we're really slow on the uptake. And I am really slow on the uptake. Okay, so I don't have a copy with me, but I asked the ushers to hand out a half sheet of paper. Did everybody get a half sheet of paper? And it says, the character of a Methodist. So this is but an excerpt, a tiny, tiny little bit of all that John Wesley wrote about what Methodists were supposed to be like. Anybody take a look through that already this morning? Okay, not many. Well, take a look through it. It's a little daunting, not going to lie. It's a little daunting. We're to be perfect and to be a true Methodist, to be aligned with the Spirit of God, to be truly on the path of transformational salvation. We're, we're all fallen like really short, and it can be a little bit daunting, right? A little like... Um, so the good news is that we, like the disciples, do not need to wait for perfection. We don't have to wait to be like Jesus in order to get started in making an impact in the world right now. Jesus didn't wait for the perfect moment. Or maybe it was exactly the perfect moment because of how pinpointedly Jesus serves the regular community. So, as a family and people of faith, we don't have to wait until we're perfect either to move forward in serving God. It's a process. The disciples enter in a process, starting with active belief, and it's going to move them all the way through their lifetimes as they found a church. So we... Um, so... Uh, so I want to show... Okay, so I want to show you a video... Uh, from uh, the General Board of Church and Society. It's cut, so it's a little... I, it's three minutes. I wanted to keep it short. Um, but it features the United Methodist pastor, Reverend Stephen Copley, and their effort to boost the minimum wage in Arkansas. And um, let's just listen to what happened there. And I think if I press it, will it start? Okay. Like all major cities in the country, Little Rock is challenged by its economic woes. And like many places, those who rise to meet these challenges are people of faith. Reverend Stephen Copley is one such person. Bible's real clear. More than 2,000 times it talks about God's concern for the poor. One of Copley's most notable achievements is when he organized with others to raise Arkansas's minimum wage in 2006. At that time, it was $5.15 an hour. That's, that was $10,600 a year. And, and I used to always say, how does anybody live on $10,600 a year? You know, how do you have an automobile? How do you buy clothes? How do you have insurance? So we knew it was time to see a race, and we pulled together a coalition. Copley chaired the coalition named Give Arkansas a Raise Now. It consisted of advocates for children, the unhoused, the unemployed, the NAACP, and the faith-based communities. 
So after this group got together, we began to say, where, where can we find legislative leaders that we can uh, get involved? And we did it through the website. And we asked people to sign on. And they began to sign on. And candidates began to sign on. So that piece was in place. Then what happened at, with the website and with the publicity, because the press was really excited, our polling had shown that 88% of all our Kansans said, you know, it's not right if you work hard, play by the rules, and you're living in poverty. The press loved it. Citizens began to get excited, and the coalition got 100,000 signatures to get the measure on the ballot. And then things got really interesting. We didn't have to get it on the ballot. What happened is we, the governor had a special session, called special legislative session. They came to us and said, we'd like to put it on the, in the call. And would you all be willing to do that if, if we made some kind of uh, concessions and trade-offs? And we did, and the minimum wage was raised a dollar and ten cents in Arkansas. But there, there it is, how ordinary church folks understanding the need that uh, people shouldn't work hard and play by the rules and be poor with this group of advocates that were pulled together, many of them church leaders. Working with uh, political leaders, we were able to, to make a, uh, a change. One that has to continually be made, but it began to make some systematic type changes. Like all major cities. Here we go. Um, okay, so it's short. Um, my apologies for that, but that's just kind of, we want to keep it short. So do you hear how this is one way that this church came to understand its mission? That it, it identified a need in the community it organized its energies around that need. It made a strategic plan for how to meet that need that included members of the community, their, their gifts and their graces. And you will find, this is an interesting thing, you will find that God will equip you that if you don't know anything about the ministry you find yourself suddenly called for, God will equip you with the gifts that will be needed to make that thing come about. So this is, this is one story, and I'm not, I'm not saying we should do this, uh, but what, I'm, what I am saying is I'm going to show you some examples of different churches in our big connection who have, um, who have identified a missional goal, made strategic planning steps to achieve that goal, along the lines of what our mission is called to be, the transformative work of Christ, identifying the importance that Jesus places on the well-being of that one family in Cana, that we can recognize in that God's call to be responsive to the families here in Ashland or the big picture, the systemic changes that we might identify. So, um, so that's... So, so in telling this uh, story of the water and the wine, Jesus has just come from being baptized, and we talked about being powered up last week. He is powered up. And the very next step is to prove yourself, to show the proof of the, who and where this power is coming from and what you're going to do with it. We, as a congregation, have power in Jesus Christ. Are we going to believe it like the disciples? Are we going to believe it? Are we going to live into it and own it? And what use are we going to put to it? What are we going to do with that power, that energy, that hope 
Can we direct it into doing something good? Do we already, can we identify what our missional call as a community together is and take steps to strategically understand how to go about building on that call. So, what does Jesus do? He, the simplest thing possible in the world, the salvation of happily ever after. So, Jesus was perfect, but I'm not. Don't let it stop me. Don't let it stop you. We are not a perfect church. Don't let it stop us. We are perfect. Why? Because we come in Jesus to the work. We don't have to rely on our own abilities and perfection because God will equip us to do what it is we are called to do. So step out towards that first miracle and let the power zap you. We can show the world what we as Christians are made of. We can choose to use who we are and what we have to serve the one who calls us and transforms us, the divine one, the eternal one, and our God. Amen?